Well, I have a little confession to make. I have never actually been to any of my high school reunions. Now, for some of you, that's no big deal because you haven't been out of school for that long. But for me, um, my fifth high school reunion came and I didn't go. And then my 10th high school reunion came around and I didn't go to that either. And then just recently, well, the last few years, uh, my 20th high school reunion came and I didn't go to that one either. Now, I can't really remember if I actually could have made all of them in terms of my calendar and schedule. And it is true that I've lost touch with a lot of my high school group. But you want to know the, one of the real reasons why I haven't gone to any of my high school reunions? The reason is I'd be a little embarrassed. Yeah, a little embarrassed. You see, um, I went to a selective high school. It's, it's now one of the top three schools in the state of New South Wales. And so you can imagine my friends, well, they're super successful, right? One of them is like a, a QC, a barrister. Another one is an international jet-setting entrepreneur. And so, you know, I, I look at um, their successes and, and then I, I look at what I've done in the last 20 or so years. Yeah, I've got to admit, my CV compared to theirs is looking kind of weak. Right? From a worldly point of view, I haven't really done anything that impressive at all. I wonder if you've ever been made to feel that way, especially as a follower of Jesus. And when you look at your priorities, your life choices, uh, look at the way you spend your time, your energy, your weekends, your money. Do you ever compare and think, I'm not that impressive? Well, this is certainly how the Apostle Paul, the writer of the letter of 2 Corinthians, was made to feel. You see, the very church that he had planted and helped to grow was heavily into the comparison game. When they looked at Paul and then compared him to some of the newer leaders that had come to the city of Corinth, well, Paul simply did not measure up. I mean, these new leaders, they had impressive resumes. They carried their resumes around along with letters of recommendation from other churches and other key church leaders. They had credentials right up to their neck. Boy, were they impressive in person. I mean, the way they spoke, the way they would flaunt their knowledge, um, the way they would play up their Jewish credentials. Now, they were nothing like Paul. Unimpressive, poor, beaten up Paul, always locked up in jail. Whereas these new leaders, well, they were worth every penny they charged and they would charge. So it's in the midst of these comparisons and doubts that Paul wrote this letter, the letter of 2 Corinthians. And we've seen, especially from last week's passage, that Paul is on the defensive, isn't he? Now, you'll remember where we left off. Paul wanted his beloved church, the Corinthian church, to know that any confidence he has, any credibility, any competence, well, doesn't come from comparing himself to these outwardly new, outwardly impressive new leaders. So where does his confidence come from? Well, we looked at it last week. So remember with me chapter 3, and let me read verses 4 to 6 again. Paul writes, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now Paul is saying, look beyond the surface, isn't he? Look beyond the surface. Look past externals. What's externally impressive, these letters of recommendation, well, that's nothing. 
What counts is is internal, the transforming work of God in your heart through the Holy Spirit. Now, that train of thought, uh, as he kind of contrasts the letter, the external with the spirit, the internal, that leads Paul to our passage in verses 7 to 18. Because where you see this contrast played out the most is the difference or the contrast between the old covenant versus the new covenant, right? The contrast between Old Testament religion of law versus New Testament relationship of grace. Now, this section we're going to look at is a really loaded section, so you'll need to actually listen pretty carefully, because Paul is actually going to unpack thousands of years of Bible history from Moses' time to Jesus' time. And by the end of this journey, we'll not only understand a bigger picture of the Bible better, well, that's my hope anyway, but even more so, we'll also know why as followers of Jesus, we have actually, we have no reason at all to feel inadequate or embarrassed about where we've chosen to place our confident and confidence and what we've chosen to make a priority in our own lives. I hope you're ready for that. So why don't I pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, help us as we delve into a fairly complex passage to listen carefully, not just to my explanation, but to what you have to say to us, so that at the end of it, we might have confidence in what Jesus brings, the beautiful transforming work of, of Jesus through his Holy Spirit. In his name we pray, amen. So I have um, three points, so let's begin with verses 7 to 11. Right, first point, two ministries. Now the background to the background events to all of these verses is Exodus chapters 32, 33, and 34. Uh, let me give you a quick summary. Uh, God has just rescued his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. Moses, the leader of Israel, has been up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments. Now these commandments form the basis of the relationship between the Lord and his people. It's what's called a covenant. A covenant is a formalized relationship based on promises and obligations. It's a national constitution, if you like. But while Moses is up on the mountain, disaster strikes. Right? The people, impatient with his time away, decide to make an idol, a false representation of the Lord. They worship and bow down to this idol, the famous golden calf. And the Lord, of course, sees this and he is rightly furious. Uh, he sends Moses down from the mountain and he brings swift judgment on the people. Uh, he had rescued them. He had loved them. He wanted their exclusive devotion and loyalty. That was reasonable. But like an unfaithful spouse, they had cheated on him. And what happens next is tragic. I mean, not only are they punished, they are also excluded. What do I mean? Well, you see, what the Lord had intended, what God had intended was that he himself in all of his glory would actually dwell amongst his people. He would be in their midst, right in the heart of them, almost like the Garden of Eden was supposed to be. God with his people, God with us. But now you see, due to their sin, God would no longer be able to do that. His glory faced with their sin would only destroy them, not prosper them. So the Lord declares that he would no longer dwell among his people. And in fact, he, he's this close from abandoning them all together. Right? They would almost have to go without his presence, he says, into the promised land. He's not going to go with them. 
Now it's then that Moses intervenes and he pleads with God in Exodus chapter 34, please do not abandon us. Instead, he asks that the Lord would show his glory to him, to Moses, and that he, Moses, would be uh, the mediator, the the go-between, the carrier of God's glory as he leads the people. The Lord agrees, and so that's what happens. Moses is the only one now who gets to see God's glory. Now, we're going to have a look at some key verses in Exodus 34, and I'll show you on the screen. Let me read from Exodus 34, 29 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Okay, that's quite a long bit about the background, but I hope you see how much we needed it actually to understand our passage in 2 Corinthians, yeah? Uh, Here are three key points that you need to remember from this account of Exodus. And the first one is access. Access. Moses alone had access to God's glory, but Israel didn't, yeah? Now why? Well, they couldn't actually because of their sin, which leads to the second important point, judgment. Because of their sin, God's glory would only bring judgment, all right? Because of their sin, God's glory would only bring judgment. Just as um, UV light highlights the dirt on a, on, a, on a dirty white shirt. So God's glory, His perfection and beauty and holiness would only show up their ugliness and their sin and actually consume them with judgment. And so you see, you got something happening here. What was beautiful for Moses, right? The glory of God was beautiful for Moses would actually be terrifying for Israel. Uh, I think it's a little bit like, you know, big waves of a surf. Right? The, the, the big waves of a surf is a joy and delight to any seasoned surfer. But for people who can't swim, well, there's probably nothing more terrifying. And thirdly, the veil. And this is important, isn't it? The veil. Uh, the veil or the covering that Moses put over his face prevented the people from seeing the glory of God on his face. Uh, which would be there after he spent time in God's presence. And, and he would put the veil there, and it wasn't for Moses' sake, it was for the people's sake, because it was there to protect him, protect them, sorry. Now, here I have to mention a key misunderstanding. In fact, it's something that I, I misunderstood until uh, this last week when I uh, delved into this passage a little bit more in a bit more detail. There's actually nothing in the Exodus account, and actually... Nothing in the 2 Corinthians bit that indicates that the, the, the glory on Moses' face was fading and that that's the reason for the veil. Like, I used to think that somehow the glory of God on his face was like a phone that would run out of juice, a uh, battery, and the veil is there to prevent the people from seeing the fading glory because Moses is a little bit embarrassed about that. 
No, no, no. That's not actually what's happening. The whole point of the veil was to actually protect the people from their fear. Their fear of being consumed and judged by the glory of God. Because that's what Exodus 34 tells us. When they saw the glory on Moses' face, they were afraid. So even though it's not the full glory of God, but the glory just reflected on Moses' face, it was still something that the people needed to be protected from. Hence the veil. Now, you might be thinking, wait, um, doesn't 2 Corinthians talk about fading glory or transitory glory? Well, depending on the translation of the Bible you're using, there's actually a key word in this passage that occurs four times uh, that actually is worth nutting out in a bit more detail. Now, in the NIV, the New International Version, which we, which we use, it's there in verse 7 and 11, translated as transitory. You see there? Transitory. But then the same word is in verse 13, but it's translated as passing away. But it's the same word in the original. And then the same word again in verse 14 is translated as taken away. Now, they're all exactly the same word used by Paul in the original Greek that he wrote in. And here's the thing. That word doesn't actually mean fading away. It doesn't actually even mean passing away. It's not like a phone that would run out of battery, that idea. It's, it's not, not quite like that. The word in Greek, and I'm going to throw a Greek word at you, is the word katargeo. Katargeo, in other places of the New Testament, means to be brought to an end. Right? To be nullified, to be brought to nothing, to be brought to an end, or to be rendered inoperative. Uh, let me put it in simpler terms that you would understand, well, hopefully. Um, it's actually what you do to a program on your computer when the, when the program stalls. What happens when a program stalls on your computer? What do you do? You force quit, right? right? You force quit. Um, that's what katageo means. It's force quitting. So here's what happen what's happening with the glory of God on the face of Moses. It wasn't like it was fading, you know, like a, a battery running out of juice. It, it was there in full... But that's why it was a problem. You see, God's glory in the presence of the people's sinfulness, even as it's on the face of Moses, it meant judgment. It meant condemnation. It brought death. It didn't bring life. And so that glory needed to be katageoed, force quitted. And it was force quitted by being hidden behind the veil. The veil was the force quit. Yeah. yeah why? Well, again, so the people would not be consumed by God's glory in their sinfulness. Uh, to carry on with the computer illustration, I hope you put up with this for those who don't like computers. Anyway, um, imagine you had an old PC, an old Mac, but you wanted to run a new program, yeah? But the old specs on your computer just simply can't handle it. So um, you try to run the program, but it stalls and you have to keep force quitting the program rather have, have it completely crash your computer every time you try to run it. All right, here's the illustration. Uh, the old computer is like the Old Testament people of God in their sin, Israel. The new program is the glory of God. All right, they simply could not handle it. Uh, they didn't have the specs for that. When the glory of God came, the people couldn't handle it. So the veil was Moses' way of well, force quitting it. Yeah. Now, let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and see the points of comparison. Remember, my point is about two ministries. The old ministry versus the new ministry. How is it compared? Let's have a look at those verses again. Let me start reading from verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, 
so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory or force-quitted though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory, force-quitted, came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? You see, if the old covenant is like the, uh, the old computer that can't handle the new program of God's glory, then the new covenant is the new computer with new and improved specs that can finally handle it. You see, with, with these new specs, you don't need to force quit the program anymore. And Paul's point is that this new covenant, this new ministry of God's Spirit that he's involved in, that we're involved in, that's what can get to the heart of people. You know, you can't just run a new program on an old computer by changing the externals, the case, the mouse, the keyboard, even the monitor. Now, you've you got to change the internals, right? The CPU, the, the memory, the graphics card. So it is with the old versus new covenant. The old covenant of the law, written as letters on tablets of stone, is external religion. And so it can't ever handle all that God wants to give to his people in intimate relationship with them. Now, what does God want to give to his people as he's intimately relating to them? Well, he wants to give them his very presence, his glory. He wants to show them his face, his beauty. And externals simply will not do. So a new covenant is needed. A covenant by God's Spirit that could change the internal. You see, as impressive as these new leaders in Corinth were with their letters and their CV showing off their Jewish pedigree, Paul says, why would you go there? There's no real glory there. The real glory is in the ministry of the Holy Spirit done on the hearts of people. It's not external at all. And isn't that something that we need to remember, isn't it? I don't know about you, but for me, um, both as a parent and as, as a pastor, let me admit, it's so much easier just to go for external conformity. Yeah? Right? Just to lay down the law, um, aim for outward obedience, rather than pointing people to the way of internal heart transformation. And heart transformation was not going to be by law, by rules, by obligations. It's going to be by grace and kindness and love and prayer. And by the power of the Holy Spirit on people's hearts. Well, that leads to the second part of our passage and my second point. Two veils. Look again at verse 12. Let me read those. Uh, Verses 12 to 14. Therefore, since we have such a hope, We are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, or force quitted. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Katageod, right? Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Uh, There's heaps there I don't have time to go deeper into, 
So let me just give a quick summary of it. Um, Paul takes the veil image, the veil over Moses's face, and he says, look, there are actually, uh, there are actually two veils. I mean, the literal veil over Moses's face was necessary because of the metaphorical veil over the people's hearts and minds. You got that? The literal veil over Moses' face was necessary because of the metaphorical veil over people's hearts and minds. Uh, you see, the glory, remember, had to be force quitted by the veil on Moses' face, not because there was something wrong with the glory of God or something wrong with Moses. No, God's glory is beautiful and wonderful and meant to be life-giving. No, it was veiled because there was something wrong with the people's hearts. It was because of their sinful hearts that didn't and couldn't obey God willingly and perfectly. Their minds were made dull, and dull there doesn't mean dumb or ignorant, it means hardened. That's the word dull in verse 14, it actually also means hardened. Their problem isn't intellectual, it's moral. And that, says Paul, is the second veil, the metaphorical veil. The veil over people's hearts and minds is actually what made the veil over Moses' face necessary. You got that? And Paul would know it, right? I mean, he's a former Jewish guru of the Old Testament, a Pharisee. The guys who read scripture from, from the time they were young, memorized whole chunks of it. But for Paul, until he became a follower of Jesus, he just simply, simply didn't get it, right? With all that scripture and Bible knowledge, he could not see God's glory. He didn't have relationship with God because there was a veil over his heart and mind. But of course, something happens, something miraculous happens when someone meets Jesus. Look at verse 16. Let me read those verses now. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that's what happened, uh, you know, to, to Paul or Saul, as he, as he was called then, Saul the Pharisee. Uh, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, the irony is even though his eyes were struck blind as he faced Jesus's glory, the veil over his mind and his heart was actually removed and he could actually for the first time see the glory of God. Because when he met Jesus, he met someone who loved him. Someone who had died for him, for you and me as well, on the cross, in our place. Someone who was willing to forgive him and consider him perfectly righteous in God's sight. And this was a righteousness that didn't come from his own efforts to obey the law and commandments, which he had done all his life. No, God would give you righteousness as a gift out of grace. And all of a sudden, Paul could see how beautiful and glorious God was. Uh, like the reformer, Martin Luther, if you know, um, who, when he understood justification by faith, how trusting in Jesus could actually make you right with God. For Martin Luther, as it is with Paul, God's righteousness and God's holiness and glory and perfection was no longer terrifying. It became something wonderful and inviting. God's glory, once you see it through Jesus, is actually something beautiful. Um, back to my illustration, like the pounding waves of a surf is to a seasoned surfer. It's still majestic, it's still powerful, right? And you have to be careful in it, but it's not something you run away from in fear, is it? It's something you run towards. So you can swim in it and enjoy it. 
You see, when a person turns to the Lord Jesus, the veil is removed. When you turn to Jesus, the Holy Spirit gets involved. The new life is marked by inner transformation. The Holy Spirit does that in your heart, in your mind, and that life now becomes yours. And this life is one of freedom, right? Verse 17, just as Moses with an unveiled face could freely go into the presence of the Lord, so we with unveiled faces can go into the presence of the Lord too. And and, and in verse 17, freedom. Freedom from the slavery and burden of the Old Testament law, always trying to obey and never measuring up, but also freedom for, not just freedom from, but freedom for actual real life change yeah real heart transformation that is lasting and itself glorious now that last verse verse 18 that really is the crowning verse isn't it as new covenant people who've had veils removed from their hearts made new by the holy spirit as we come to jesus unashamed unafraid with all this freedom and we contemplate or, or we behold we look at him in all of his beauty and glory guess what in verse 18 we actually become like the one we behold right isn't that incredible we ourselves says verse 18 we become glorious and more and more so we become the people we were always meant to be right people created to be in god's image reflecting and bearing god's glory as we grow in our relationship with jesus that's actually what happens is a human beings, you and I, we were created to be phosphorescent, not luminescent. Um, some big words there. I, I don't know if you know the difference. Phosphorescence versus luminescence. Uh, something luminous gives off its own light, it's like a firefly. But something phosphorescent gives off light that it absorbs from another source, like glow-in-the-dark stickers. Right? When we bask in Jesus' glory, that makes us phosphorescent with his glory and so finally two applications my third point the first is in verse 12 see verse 12 for paul and anyone doing any form of christian ministry which by the way is actually every follower of jesus is involved in serving uh, others that's what ministry means it means service for 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 any christian involved in christian ministry well verse 12 says we are very bold See, when someone turns to Jesus, uh, as we said, something miraculous, extraordinary happens, doesn't it? Veils are removed, hearts are changed, and they get transformed from glory into glory like we were created to be. Now, there'll be more of this as I talk about um, it in chapter 4 next week. But here, I think, is an important reminder not to be discouraged, yeah? Not to be discouraged in our ministry to others, especially in the ministry of evangelism of sharing the gospel trying to help someone become a christian right don't be discouraged keep showing people jesus keep showing people jesus you don't have to be great at speaking no theology no philosophy know how to argue no no just point people to jesus invite people to meet jesus for themselves in the pages of the gospels and guess what see what happens then and by the way if you're someone who's yet to know jesus personally and be a follower of jesus and you're still investigating uh, we would love to help you. And that's what we're here for. We want to help you meet the Jesus in the pages of the Bible so that you might see him in all of his glory. Um, so please do connect with us, right? Because uh, we have lots of opportunities right now and coming up to do so 
um, especially online in these uncertain times. All right, the second application is this. If beholding Jesus' glory transforms us to be more and more glorious like him, then we got to ask ourselves, is that actually a priority in our own lives? Right? Is that a priority? Is becoming more gloriously like our Lord our chief aim in life? Or do lesser glories that don't last, the shiny things of this world, are those the things that actually absorb all of our time and energy and our devotion? Let me tell you about a man called Robert Murray McShane. McShane was a Scottish pastor in the 1830s. He became a pastor when he was 22, and he died when he was only 29 years old. He lived such a short life. He had only about seven years as a pastor, in fact. And yet this young man was known to be the most saintly and godly man anyone ever met when they came across him. Genuinely so. And so at his funeral, a fellow pastor said that McShane was, and this is a quote, he was the most faultless and attractive exhibition of the true Christian, which I had ever seen embodied in living form. Now that's pretty high praise, huh? Now, why was McShane like this? Well, the same pastor said of him, and I'll quote again, his great study was to be Christ-like. He was a man of remarkable singleness of heart. He lived but for one object, the glory of the Redeemer, in connection with the salvation of immortal souls. Now, McShane, you might have heard his name, right? Some of you have. Uh, from the one-year Bible reading plan that's actually named after him. Now, it was named after him because it was McShane's habit every morning before dawn to wake up so that he could spend a couple of hours in the presence of the Lord, in prayer, in Bible reading. You see, McShane loved communing with Jesus. He loved spending time with Jesus. He loved beholding, contemplating the glory of Jesus. Let me share with you some of McShane's own words. First quote from his journal. He writes this, Rose early to seek God and found him whom my soul loves, who would not rise early to meet such company. And then he wrote this to a student. He wrote this, quote, Never see the face of man till you have first seen the face of Jesus, he who is our life, our all. And lastly, this quote, and this is a, a really important one, I think. He says this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. Feel His all-seeing eye. Settle on you in love and rest in His almighty arms. You want to know the secret of McShane's? Glory, godliness, beauty, faith. That's the secret. That's why he shone with the beauty of the Lord Jesus. And that's why in his short 29 years on earth, he lived a gloriously Christ-like life. I want to be like him. I want to be like him, don't you? Because is there anything more worthwhile and worth experiencing than the glory of God? This is the glory that Israel couldn't experience, but we can. The glory of God that transforms us 
into what we were created to be. You see, friends, making your life all about Jesus, making Jesus known and knowing Jesus better, like McShane, spending time in Jesus' presence regularly, enjoying Him, beholding Him, contemplating Him. You know what? That is not something to be ashamed of or embarrassed about. Not now, not ever. Even when you compare yourself to others. Even if you should go to your high school reunions. Oh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to behold your glory. We repent and are sorry for the ways in which we have traded your glory for lesser glories. Things that can't last. You've given us everything that we need to behold your face, to contemplate your glory with unveiled hearts and minds. So please help us make the most of that by firstly pointing others to you and secondly by enjoying you in our own walks, in our own days. Oh Father, make us like McShane so that we might shine brilliantly with your glory. Amen. Well, I have a discussion question for those who want to do it now in your groups or maybe later on at home. The discussion question is this. How can you make the most of the glorious transformation that Jesus wants to do in your life and the lives of people around you? Right? How can you make the most of this truth, the glorious transformation that Jesus wants to do in your life and in the lives of the people around you? Well, God's blessing be with all of you and we'll see you again very soon. Bye.